You're listening to Ready, Set, Israel, a podcast sponsored by Hasbara Fellowships. Israel's fourth national election in two years took place on Tuesday, but the quest to form a new Israeli government is far from over. As a parliamentary system, Israelis vote for what proportion of Knesset seats will be allocated to which particular political party. And like the previous three elections, no single party received enough votes to form a minority or a majority on its own, which means the different parties will have to attempt to join together to form a government. In the previous election that took place in March of 2020, Avigdor Lieberman of Yisrael Beitenu held the winning ticket, but no compromise was reached to include him in the coalition. What's interesting this time around is that, rather than just one person, multiple possible deciding players have emerged who could potentially constitute the deciding factor in the formation of the next Knesset. Naftali Bennett of the nationalist New Right Party, Gideon Saar, who split with Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu from Likud, and now even Mansour Abbas from the Islamist Ram Party, all of whom are currently being wooed by either Yair Lapid from the center-left Yeshatid Party or by Netanyahu from Likud. Will the various Knesset factions pull together to form a government, or will Israel be forced to head to a fifth round of elections? Here with us today to survey who the quote-unquote kingmakers are and shed some light on the challenges they face in creating a coalition government is political correspondent and senior analyst for the Times of Israel, Haviv Gore, with us to discuss the issue. Good evening, Haviv. Good evening, Simone. How are you? Good, thank you. So let's start with Ram and its leader, Mansour Abbas. What is the main agenda of the Ram party and who would they potentially sit with as part of a coalition government? Ram is um, an Islamist party. What that means is it's more than just that it has conservative Muslim uh, values and advances those conservative religious values, um, but it actually believes that Islam, a political Islam is the solution to the problems that afflict both the Muslim world generally, the Arab world uh, in recent decades or over the past century, um, and also Israel's Arab community. And, and, and so um, uh, Mansour Abbas uh, has led Ram on a new path over the last year, uh, which is really fascinating, splitting off uh, right from the, from the joint list of Arab parties or Arab majority parties. Um, there are also Jews uh, in, in some of those parties. Um, but splitting off from that from that group of parties and saying, you know, we come with this conservative Muslim sensibility and 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 priorities, and and so we have the I would say the authenticity, the cachet to be able to make compromises uh, with the Zionist Jewish political parties and mainstream that parties more focused on Palestinian nationalism as their sort of founding ideology have not been able to do. And so he's he's using that that platform um, of a very a very Muslim identity to actually say, hey, um, our community has been neglected by the Israeli government over many years. I think it's time that we enter into coalition negotiations, sit at the negotiating table, become part of the coalition building game, which is how you decide the priorities of the next coalition, the next government, and send some money and send some government attention uh, to the Arab-Israeli community and the Muslim community, um, which of course, are, are desperately in need of it. Uh, Israeli governments have have neglected um, them over the years uh, far, far too much. I'm hopeful that maybe they would be able to end up in a coalition somehow. I mean, certainly the idea of an Arab party joining an Israeli government 
rather than remaining in the opposition is a potentially historic moment for Israeli politics. Moving to the other side of the political spectrum, Naftali Bennett, who represents much of the right-wing settlers, has stated that there is no chance he will join a government that includes the Ram party. Instead, Bennett has demanded that he be made prime minister in exchange for his mandate. Despite his party only managing to garner seven Knesset seats, is there a chance he could actually unseat Benjamin Netanyahu and become Israel's first new prime minister in 12 years? I, uh, first of all, we don't know. We don't know if Bennett could be prime minister or Lapid, or frankly, we, we don't know if Netanyahu could be prime minister. It depends on a lot of politicians. It actually depends on a very few politicians making extremely costly choices for, for their political future. Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean that for Benjamin Netanyahu to sit with Ra'am would be a very, and it's hard to see a coalition, um, a Netanyahu-led government without Ram, at least supporting from outside the coalition. Um, but Netanyahu has campaigned on the dangers of, of, of forming a coalition with a non-Zionist party. Um, and so Netanyahu, if he faces a new election and, and campaigned and sat with Ram, um, he'll, he'll be hard pressed to run that campaign again. And in fact, his competitors, his challengers from the right, will say that about him in the campaign. So he's he's very, very squeamish about sort of breaking new ground and trailblazing politically. Uh, and Naftali Bennett is the same thing in all directions. He doesn't want to appear to be Netanyahu's lapdog. He ran as a critic of Netanyahu. Um, at the same time, if he starts negotiating some kind of a coalition with merits on the left, that'll be used against him by Netanyahu in the next election. And then you go to Lapid. Lapid has to somehow bring in Bennett and Saar on the right, uh, and 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 Ram and potentially the joint list and and and, and merits and others on the left. Um, and so they people, you know, these factions might be willing to make those compromises if they thought they now had a four-year term of a healthy, stable coalition in, in a serious Knesset and a, and a strong government uh, that, that, that can do good things for the Israeli people. But since they all expect a fifth election to happen, it's very hard for them to make that compromise. Uh, so I, I don't think so. Thank you. Those are some great points. Speaking of Netanyahu, Gideon Saar, who was number two on the Likud list, left the Likud party out of frustration with Bibi and formed the New Hope Party. Sa'ar has since been shopping his mandate to Yair Lapid of Yeshatid. Is there any chance that Netanyahu will manage to convince him not to go that route and instead remain with the right-wing coalition? Um, Sa'ar is one of those people, you know, he ran on ousting Netanyahu. That was his only point. I mean, he has a, a rich and serious uh, party platform, but all of it is premised on his promise that he won't uh, go sit with Netanyahu. If a fifth election looms, which it seems to, it's everybody's first choice of what the possible options are now. Um, if a fifth election looms, then 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 Saar can't afford to go to elections having violated his central campaign promise. So I, I would be very surprised if Saar uh, backtracks on his main promise to his voters um, and goes with Netanyahu, and even then would only end up with a coalition that would be pretty narrow, uh, so uh, and therefore susceptible to new elections, etc. So I, I suspect not. At the end of the day, though, it almost certainly will come down to whether the politicians are willing to find some sort of compromise. Will the fear of having to go through another round of elections really be enough to motivate them to find a middle ground? I know you mentioned you think people are expecting that there's going to be a fifth election. Do you think that's going to scare them into trying to form a coalition or more just put it off 
until well, that's an it's inevitable fifth election. Yeah, well, that's a great question because that's the that's the alternative way of looking at it, right? I I argue that um, the fact that everyone expects another round of elections means they can't make the hard compromises to produce the coalition, uh, the only coalition available to them. Uh, and, and this question suggests that in fact, the fear of the fifth election will make them desperate to compromise, right? Um, and, and I think that's a very valid question. It's interesting that we're, we're trying to figure out that the way an Israeli election works is that the people send parties to the Knesset, but you don't win the election on election day, right? The parties then negotiate amongst themselves. So we're now in a situation where very, very few people have to make those decisions and sort of weave their way through those very difficult choices. Um, some parties are, are less threatened by a new election than others. Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, has one of the best ground games and a serious operation, and it's a, a you know veteran of six elections, and 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 it doesn't fear an election. Um, Likud probably doesn't fear an election. Um, it has good campaign funding. It's it's going to do okay. Kidon Sar and Naftali Bennett, that right wing non Netanyahu supporting middle ground, uh, are probably terrified of an election because their voters are are, are brand new and, and very susceptible to moving on. So. Um, I, I think that there are some who will try in the end to avoid an election. Uh, I suspect that that um, the sense that an election is inevitable uh, is going to make it inevitable. I think the fear of the election will propel us to an election more than it will prevent an election. But these are subtle distinctions and that's a very, very good question. Well, I guess we're gonna have to wait and see. And hopefully I'm sure for everybody's sake, a coalition will be formed and there won't be a fifth election, but I mean, nobody knows. And people are uh, saying uh, that whoa, when whoa, there whoa. is the third election, the second election, so. Excuse me, Simon, you know, political pundits make their money off these elections. So there is one small group of people. That's true. Huh? Hoping for yet another one. That's true. Uh, no, that, that was a joke. I want to clarify. I do hope this ends with political stability. Thank you so much. All of the points you raised were great. This was extremely insightful. And that is Ready, Set, Israel's Haviv Gore. And now on to Gianna with our next story. On Monday, a historic agreement was signed between Israeli state-owned water company Mekorot and Bahrain's Electricity and Water Authority, with Israel committing $3 million worth of consulting services to the Gulf Nation for future water projects. As the arid island of Bahrain does not have any lakes or rivers, Collaboration with Israel will establish and improve Bahrain's desalination technologies and help build a more efficient energy supply. Israel and Bahrain only recently established official diplomatic ties in September of 2020. And with this contract being the first Mekorot has ever signed with an Arab country, the agreement shows a tangible result of those diplomatic efforts. Given the water-starved landscape of the Middle East, water cooperation was one of the major driving forces in establishing normalization between the Jewish state and both Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. This is RSI executive producer Gianna Michelson, and joining us this week is Noam Bedin, Middle East water and ecotourism expert. Noam, great to speak with you. Thank you, Gianna. Noam, set the framework for us. Why is water such an important diplomatic tool in the Middle East, and why does Israel seem to have such an advantage when it comes to this issue? Okay, well, that's a great question. I mean, overall, the Middle East is one of the driest regions in the entire world. So, of course, water is the most valuable resource we actually have. And uh, the more we understand how 
the Middle East is actually running out of water, we understand this is the most valuable asset that we actually have. The truth is my background is actually advocating for the Dead Sea, Israel's world wonder, uh, like never done before. And from that understanding that uh, what the region actually needs is, is fresh, huge quantities of fresh water. And it's not until actually regional cooperation uh, dealing with water uh, or advocating for water solutions or water technologies, we can actually reach uh, a better stability aspect of the Middle East. Uh, Israel, all the way back uh, to, to the, to the Zionist, uh, Zionist movement, had a huge urge in terms of water solutions for the entire region, uh, specifically, of course, in Israel. The, 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 the national carrier in the, in the 60s was, was a revolution uh, dur during the 60s. Uh, in terms of uh, how to bring water all the way from the north down to the south to the Negev area. Right. Uh, Israel today is considered the global leader in anything that has to do with water management, water technologies, water solutions overall. And it's already providing solutions and, and techniques to third world countries and developing, developing countries. Uh, this is what I came to, to discover, by the way, the more I've been dealing with you know, trying to save a water treasure and realizing what Israel is actually all about in terms of uh, water. Uh, overall. Uh, so Israel had no choice but to actually advance itself in water supply, uh, spe specifically dealing with climate change of, you know, years of droughts of the region really impacts in terms of water. And we needed to find these kind of solutions in order to strive and have, you know, true sustainability uh, for, the, for the coming future. So that being said, how significant is this recent agreement between Israel and Bahrain? I mean, to, to be to be honest, this is actually the official agreement between Bahrain and Israel. Uh, it's interesting enough that the main deals before the uh, the official recognition and normalization during uh, the Abraham Accords, the actually the communications we actually had with these uh, following with these following countries was actually with water technology. So behind the scenes, uh, there's actually there were relations uh, with Bahrain and the UAE regarding desalination. Uh, there's over 150 uh, desalination uh, uh, plants uh, throughout the entire region. Uh, Israel actually has the largest facility in the world, going back to the Dead Sea cause, by the way, uh, the largest facility in the world uh, is planned to be built first saving the Dead Sea overall. And actually the World Bank is putting $10 billion into that project because this became uh, the project of coexistence and living here side by side. It became the symbol of, of, uh, of normalization uh, dealing with water. And uh, you know, in terms of ecotourism, uh, water uh, is a great uh, tool, is a great diplomatic uh, uh, aspect that we have. It's a shared value that, could, that could, can create a common interest story between all people in the Middle East. And that's why the main focus is water diplomacy, which is a great way all the way to the younger generations to get them excited about having this, this shared kind of value, at the same time being a model case for the entire region and also for the entire world. So these, so what's happening today with these uh, peace, with these um, official agreements, agreements with, with, with Bahrain and UAE regarding water is definitely a, a first starter, a gate to the entire Middle East. I'm glad you brought that up and I'm glad you brought up the Abraham Accord. So 
both these countries, Bahrain and the UAE, cited water as a major reason why they wanted to sign these peace deals with Israel. So do you see that other countries in the future might reach a point where they realize they cannot solve their water problems on their own and see this reason as a concern of water security be a motivation for them to press for normalization with Israel? So it's a great point. Uh, we should always remember that war has been always a cause for war. At the same time, water, water diplomacy is a great tool for, for stability of the region. And overall, this, this has became, uh, uh, you know, starting from focusing in, in, on our water treasure in Israel, it brought me to the next story and to the next cause, to the most brighter cause, to become a bridge to the water treasures throughout the Middle East. For the first time in history, uh, the, the rivers of the Middle East have been dried out. If it's the Tigris, the Federis, Nile, the Nile is the longest river in the world, actually, going through seven countries. And huge confrontations happening over there. You know, the, the Syrian civil war that had that began 2011 began with having lack of water for farmers. 250,000 farmers had a lack of water for their crops, and they need to immigrate to other uh, places around Syria, causing a lot of ethnic uh, um, uh, clashes over there. And so water is a, ma is a major aspect for stability of the entire Middle East. And uh, through ecotourism, we are hoping to become a bridge to other water treasures uh, for rehabilitation, which are a huge need for it, rehabilitation and maintenance. And Israel has a lot to share with that. And um, we're re really hoping, I'm hoping this is part of uh, our vision uh, having a model case first working with the UIE with a bilateral ecotourism focus on water sustainability is to become a bridge to other water treasures th throughout the entire region. And having the Abraham Accords, thanks to the Abraham Accords, adding this shared value in order to get local leaderships, youth, and people around the world to be excited about this kind of concept. No, thank you for all your insight. It was great to have you this week. Let's take it to sure. our next story. Last week, over 200 academic scholars released a new definition of anti-Semitism, which explicitly excludes effort to boycott Israel. This comes just over a week after a group of Jewish scholars released the Nexus document, which characterized double standards applied to Israel as not necessarily anti-Semitic. The newly released Jerusalem Declaration of Anti-Semitism designates itself as a response to the 2016 definition adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which has since been supported by various governments and establishment organizations. The IHRA retains some controversy for an illustrative example that defined as anti-Semitic, applying double standards by requiring of Israel a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. The Jerusalem Declaration is so named by the scholars who came together under the auspice of the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute in 2020. The definition goes further than the Nexus document in saying that the movement to boycott Israel is not by its very nature anti-Semitic. Here with us today to discuss this development is educator and author Ben Freeman. Thank you for joining us today, Ben. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Let's just jump right into it. The New Jerusalem Declaration begins with a preamble that foregrounds the need for clarity to the confusion and different interpretations that can be applied to the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. What clarity, if any, does IHRA definition require and how does the New Jerusalem Declaration 
change the conversation regarding Israel and Zionism in its relation to anti-Semitism? So I'll start with IHRA. I don't necessarily think that it requires definition or clarification. First of all, because the IHRA itself um, describes this, this working definition as a guide, and it says the following examples may serve as illustrations. Okay, so it is leaving quite a lot of room, which I think is important because the thing that we have to understand about anti-Jewish racism is that it comes in many forms. It comes from the left, it comes from the right, it comes from the Muslim world, it comes from many different communities, it has many different expressions, and it has existed for thousands of years. So it is not possible for one document, for one declaration, for one definition to encompass all of these examples. And I think what IHRA does is focus on the reality of our situation. And it focuses on 11 examples, or it offers 11 examples of what may, what could be considered anti-Jewish racism, because those are the ones we most commonly see. And I think it's really important to say that it is not all encompassing. The IHRA is not all encompassing and it does not intend to be, but it does offer us a much needed and also valued, let's not forget that many different organizations and entities throughout the world have adopted the IHRA definition. So it does offer us a much needed and valued framework to understand slash spot the most frequent expressions of anti-Jewish racism. And it's also, kind of crazy to me that people say IHRA stops freedom of speech, specifically regarding Israel and the Palestinians, because it literally says, criticism of Israel, similar to that leveled against any other country, cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. So the question I have then, if one wants to make a statement about Israel that you could not make against other countries or that you would not make against other countries, what exactly are you trying to say? You're trying to treat Israel with double standards, you're trying to demonize it, and ultimately, I would say most likely, try to delegitimize it. And we saw this in the Labour Party in the UK. I'm from Scotland, um, as you may know, you may be able to tell from my accent. And we had all of this. We had all of this in 2018 with the Labour Party. And it was the same conversation. They did not want to adopt the IHRA definition in full because it impinged their freedom of speech. That is just not true. The reality is those who are against IHRA are against it because they wanted to make statements that would fall foul of it. So with reference to the Jerusalem Declaration and the conversation regarding Israel Zionism, what it wants to do, as far as I can tell, is diminish the threat of anti-Jewish racism from the left. Importantly, they do recognize it, they do say this exists, but they say it's not as important, it's not as dangerous as anti-Jewish racism from the right. I think you ask British Jews and you ask many Jews from many different places around the world and that is not the case. And I'm not here to tell you that left anti-Jewish racism is worse than right, but I think these, this politicization, this in, incessant conversation that we're forced to have but which is worse is totally reductive. Because ultimately what the left say, what the right say, they're the exact same. And actually, as one of my students said, it's the same sort of different bowl. And what the, the Jerusalem Declaration does is muddy the water. And this is the irony, because the Jerusalem Declaration says that it wants to offer clarity. It wants to clarify confusion regarding IHRA. But it is the opposite of what they're doing. They are purposely, I think, 
muddying the water, causing confusion, so that people who want to say things about Israel that are in fact anti-Jewish will now be able to do so. Because what they'll say is, well, the, the Jerusalem Declaration allows me. It is going to confuse the institutions, the entities that have adopted IHRA. And I think it's totally self-serving. What it does is diminish anti-Jewish racism on the left. And it actually empowers it. And I tweeted, I came out very strong against this. And I actually said that it was a masturbatory fantasy of anti-Jewish racists and those who enable it. And I got quite a lot of flack for that, but I stand by it. I'll talk a little later about the people who signed this document who have themselves been accused of anti-Jewish racism. So if it is being promoted by people who are accused of anti-Jewish racism, then what can we say about it? It is, it is a complete distraction. It's a complete waste of time. It is harmful and it does not offer any clarity whatsoever. Yeah, you're making a lot of very important points. And uh, you mentioned the students. So the Jerusalem Declaration says that the movement to boycott Israel is not anti-Semitic in and of itself. So what implications can a Jewish and pro-Israel student expect on campus as a result of the declaration? Well, I think it's just going to make their situation worse. The anecdotal evidence coming out of many campuses across the United States and indeed across the world is that Jewish students are being subjected to unbelievably aggressive anti-Jewish racism. And one of the biggest challenges they face is getting universities to see what they're experiencing, to understand the, the gravity of what they're experiencing, and then also to adopt IRA as this kind of framework and guide to helping understand their experience. So the Jerusalem Declaration, I think, is going to make their experience worse. And this is the kind of tragedy of all of this, actually. The Jewish students are living in reality. They're living at these universities in reality. The Jerusalem Declaration, I have to tell you, is total fantasy. It is not living in the real world. So it said, boycotts, divestment and sanctions are commonplace, non-violent forms of political protests against state. In the Israeli case, they're not in and of themselves anti-Semitic. And yes, actually that is true. But that is not the reality that these students are living in. The reality these students are living in is that BDS specifically targets Israel, specifically targets Jews. It seeks to make Jews and Israel pariahs, either in social circumstances or in the international community. And it seeks to um, isolate Jewish students. And it, tar and, it and it only targets Israel. So that's the reality. So what we have is this warped situation where these people have written this declaration but have absolutely no concept of reality, or if they do, they're choosing to ignore it. And they also said something else that I thought was very interesting, that criticizing or opposing Zionism as a form of nationalism might not necessarily be anti-Semitic. And again, yes, technically. If someone is against the concept of nation states, then yes, they would also be against Zionism. But that is not the reality that we're in. Similar to their, their I find baffling quoting of between the river and the sea, this very uh, offensive, harmful, actually genocidal uh, slogan that exists. And the Jerusalem Declaration quotes it, which is very odd. And then goes on to say, whether in a two state, a binational, unitary democratic state, federal state, or in whatever form, again, they're not living in reality. And the reality is none of those options other than two states are viable because we have seen how Jews have been treated in Arab lands. We've seen that. So what we have is people 
who have been described as scholars and experts and academics. And they might be scholars and they might be academics, but I'm not sure many of them are scholars with regards to anti-Jewish racism or Israel or Zionism. And that is quite a different thing, let's be clear about that. But they're living in fantasy. But the problem is, is that their fantasy is going to impact the reality potentially of Jewish students everywhere, because it's going to make it more difficult for these Jewish students to say to their universities or their colleges, look at what we are experiencing. What we are experiencing is deemed as anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish by HRA, because then there's every possibility the university is going to turn around and say, well, what about the Jerusalem Declaration? And actually, the Jerusalem Declaration itself says for those who have adopted IHRA, this document can be used to interpret it, which is really saying, use our definition which is not rooted in any kind of reality and that is the tragedy here because this could impact the real university experience of thousands of jewish students across the world yeah um as someone who has recently passed ihra at my school i can tell you that this is definitely not going to help us that's for sure and those so-called experts are definitely not experts on anti-semitism but Ben, thank you so much for your insight. We really appreciate you joining us today. This is Ellie with Ready, Said Israel. Tune in next week for our next Israel update. You're listening to Ready, Set Israel, a podcast sponsored by Hasbara Fellowships. The Biden administration recently committed $15 million in COVID relief to the Palestinians, intending to help the most vulnerable communities and ease food insecurity. Aid to the Palestinians so far has been a patchwork of the United Nations and different foreign players sending vaccine doses to either the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. This move comes after aid to Palestinians was suspended under the Trump administration. President Biden has expressed the desire to reverse the animosity created with the PA during his term. In addition to the aid for tackling the pandemic, the Biden administration is said to have earmarked, to have earmarked up to $75 million in additional funds to help rebuild trust and goodwill. Such aid is likely slated for short-term projects like healthcare and civil society. Much of this aid that is allotted to help the Palestinians tackle COVID-19 and restore relationships. Israel has often been criticized for not taking more of an active role in aiding the Palestinian population during the COVID-19 pandemic that has undoubtedly affected their population dramatically. However, there is a lot of conversation about who exactly is responsible for vaccination of the Palestinians. The international community would place the onus on Israel as the quote-unquote occupying power, but Israel will cite the Oslo Accords, which places healthcare responsibility on the PA. It is not entirely clear whose responsibility it is, but at this point during the pandemic, both Israel and the international community at large have taken steps to help the Palestinians in dealing with this pandemic. Some have condemned giving aid to the Palestinians given the current Palestinian policy of pay for slay, a policy rewarding terrorists and family members of imprisoned and deceased terrorists. In 2017, Congress passed the Bipartisan Taylor Force Act that puts an end to the Palestinian Authority's practice of using U.S. taxpayer dollars to finance this policy. The Biden administration argues that it can still restore the funding without violating the TFA because the goal is to provide humanitarian assistance. The question now is how influential this aid actually will be on the Palestinian lives and what we can expect as a result for the aid's restoration. For this, we're going to have to wait and see.
This is Gianna Michelson from Ready Set Israel. Founded in 2001, Hasbra Fellowships was established to train students to fight anti-Semitism, anti-Israel delegitimization, and BDS on college campuses. Hasbra Fellowships has utilized training programs in Israel and on campus to prepare thousands of student activists and storytellers for Israel since then on over 100 campuses in the United States and Canada. Be sure to visit us at HasbraFellowships.org and consider supporting the podcast and the organization. Hasbra Fellowships is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Known as Startup Nation, Israel has repeatedly proven to be one of the most innovative and entrepreneurial countries on the planet. Boasting one startup per every 1,400 people, Israel has the largest number of startups per capita in the world. Many of these startups in particular are in the field of technology. The startup accelerator known as Techstars recently selected 10 Israeli startups for the second cohort of its Tel Aviv program. This new cohort was specifically designed around startups creating innovative technology for a post-COVID world. This program will run for 13 weeks starting in April as the accelerator invests 120,000 US dollars in each company to support its development. One of the startups, 3Chrome, for example, is a Tel Aviv-based company developing an online tool to address so-called Zoom fatigue and facilitate people's ability to communicate more naturally online by using 3D video. Here with us today, we have our very own RSI director and a member of Startup Nation himself, Eitan Rosenfeld, to discuss this issue. How are you, Eitan? Simone, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. I'm also happy that you are doing great. All right, let's dive right into it and let's discuss Israel's position as the startup nation. Programs that exist in Israel, such as Techstars, certainly help incentivize and provide funding for selected startups. But what is it that makes Israel such an entrepreneurial country? And how else does Israel incentivize this entrepreneurial spirit? Simply put, Israel has no choice but to have an entrepreneurial spirit. Because of what Israel has gone through since its foundation in 1948, and the barriers that we've had to overcome as a people, we've had no choice but to innovate. We've had to grow into having an indomitable spirit. I mean, think about every war, every barrier, every setback that the Israelis people have had to go through. And the mindset is keep building, keep finding a way through. So when you have that mentality, you have no choice but to innovate and have an entrepreneurial mindset. And because Israelis are brought up like that, we see so many great companies being founded here, turning into billion-dollar companies. Right. No, definitely good points. And important to remember Israel's history. And like you said, how Israelis have had to be innovative and entrepreneurial. So, Aton, moving to you, you work for tech startup IT Central Station. What is it that makes tech startups in particular so popular? Well, that's the trend of the future. You know, tech is where so much of the world's brain power is going. It used to be, you know, finance and banks, and it still is, but uh, as well as professional degrees. But tech allows one of the, the, is one of the greatest places, one of the greatest spaces to innovate, to come up with new things, to launch 
launch new companies, launch new products that reach so many people. And, and to be frank, that's also where the money is at these days. Absolutely. So you sort of answered our last question, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, how do you see technology changing our future, especially post-COVID? And what role do you see Israeli startups playing in spearheading this change? Uh, Simone, do you drive a car? I am in my car right now. Yes, I drive a car. Um, do you have, is there like a, is there a microchip in your car that starts up your car? Most cars now have computers that start up your car. I'm unaware, but I would not be surprised you do. if there was. You definitely okay. do. Do you, do you have ways on your phone? I do. I use it to get here. Phone? So all of those things are developed by Israelis, are developed by Israeli companies. And, uh, when you, uh, when you use cloud services, when you use different video conferencing services, all of these things are have have something to do with the, with the Israeli startup nation, and and because going back to what we said in the beginning, that's the story of Israel. The story of Israel is we see a problem, and we find a solution to the problem because nobody else is going to help us. So we see a problem in the world. We see a problem that. Uh, an individual is facing, a company is facing, in many cases, a nation is facing. There are so, there's so much happening in Africa right now that, that Israel is helping to, uh, to build on a technical level. And we want to find a solution for that because we have to, because we feel there's no other choice. So wherever there is a, a problem that needs a solution, Israel will build, help to build, to find, try to find a way to build a solution for that problem. Thank you so much. And now on to Ellie with our campus story. Once again, because of the health restrictions, most students will not be able to celebrate Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel Independence Day on campus. But I have a great news for all the students listening to the podcast today. For the second year in a row, more than 20 Jewish and Israel organizations are partnering to allow you to celebrate this special day from home. The program called Yom From Home will be on Thursday, April 15th, and we'll offer sessions throughout the day and a big celebration in the evening. To learn more about this incredible program, we are joined today by Karen, a student at Maryland and a Stand With Us fellow, who's one of the students helping to plan this very, very special day. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Ellie. How are you? Very good, and you. So great to have you here with us. So my first question is, uh, this year, Young From Home is hosting three different sessions throughout the day. Can you, tell more, can you tell us a bit more about them? Sure. So one session is going to be about um, Israel's response to COVID and um, how that all went down. Um, another session is going to be about the Abraham Accords, the recent peace deals that Israel has made, um, which are quite historic, if you ask me. Um, and then the third track is what I personally have been working on over the past couple months, uh, which is, um, you know, Israel's history, where you'll get to do fun simulations and different tracks, and um, you'll get to assume an identity and pretend like you're living Israeli history. Wow, that session sounds really awesome. I'll be hosting uh, the Q&A between a, a UAE activist and an Israeli activist, so that's definitely also going to be very interesting. And, uh, and apparently there's a big celebration happening in the evening. I've been told some pretty big names will, uh, will be present. Can you tell us more about that? 
Sure. So um, first, we're going to start off with a Q&A with Amit Rahav, who was one of the stars of Unorthodox, uh, which was a really good show. You should check it out on Netflix if you haven't seen it. Um, then I have the distinct honor of doing a, two, a Q&A with Tahir Haim, who is um, who was part of the band Awa, which was like a Yemenite band. Um, you know, she started with her sisters and now she's uh, making a solo debut. So that's super fun. Um, and then we're going to have very own uh, exclusive performance from Hadak Nakash, which is going to be absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm very excited for this entire day and especially uh, the concert. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about Young From Home and sign up for one of the sessions, check out the website www.youngfromhome.com. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to follow us at Raya Israel on all of our social media platforms to keep up with the latest news about our podcast. Until next Thursday, that's Raya Said Israel. Raya Said Israel.